in Minneapolis, Minnesota. There's a place called the Orfield Laboratories. And the Orfield Laboratories is home to a room that in 2004 was called by the Guinness Book of World Records the world's quietest place, which sounds delightful. It sounds amazing to be in the world's quietest place. No distractions, nothing going on, only silence. But as it turns out, this room in the Orfield Laboratory is not the most peaceful place on earth, but actually can be horrifying. And the longest that anybody has ever been able to stay inside this room without completely losing their minds is 45 minutes. You see, this place is 99.9% sound absorbent. And they achieved this by having 3.3 feet thick fiberglass acoustic wedges, double walls of insulated steel, and a foot thick concrete. So the sound in the room measures at negative 7 dBs, and anything below zero is not perceptible by the human ears. And the reason why nobody can stay inside of this room for that long is apparently that level of silence does something pretty incredible to the human mind and the human body. When it gets that quiet inside of a room, all your other senses begin to heighten a little bit. But more than that, your ears start to adapt to the silence. And so you start hearing things that you don't normally hear. You can start to hear your heart beating. You can hear your lungs. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means at all, but it sounds terrifying. You can hear your lungs, and you can hear your stomach gurgling loudly. Apparently, your body becomes the sound in the midst of this room. And it has a really disorienting effect, apparently. And so they make you sit down in this room because your body uses sound to be able to figure out where things are. And so at a certain point of time, when you've been sitting in this quiet room for so long, you start to lose your bearings. And you can't tell where things are, and you can even start to hallucinate, and everything starts to shut down. Apparently, that level of silence can be maddening. And there's no silence more painful, not even silence in the midst of Orfield Laboratories. There's no silence more painful than the silence of God. You see, when God is silent, when it feels like God isn't speaking, when we feel like we can't hear from God, it has a very similar effect on us spiritually that that silent room can have on us physically. When we feel like we can't hear from God, we start to hear everything else a lot more clearly. All the other voices, all of the other distractions, all the other fears, and all the things that surround us start to become louder and louder. And when we don't hear from God, it can be easy to start to lose our bearing on which way is up and which way is down. And it also doesn't help that when we feel this way, we can feel very alone. Especially in the midst of a church context, because a lot of times you'll hear people talking about hearing from God or what God has spoken to them. And when you feel like you're not getting that, when you feel like you're not receiving that, you can feel very isolated and very outside the loop. But God's big story, especially in the Old Testament, reminds us that we are not alone when we experience the silence of God. The Bible reveals to us a God who speaks through his word, even when he's silent. I remember once I read an interview with B.B. King. 
B.B. King had a very unique style with the guitar. And I'm much more, when it comes to my blues, I'm much more of a Stevie Ray Vaughan guy because Stevie Ray Vaughan would just play with blistering intensity and fill the space with notes. But B.B. King talked about the way that he would play with these big open spaces. And he pointed out that the rests in the music are just as much music as the notes. And inside of Scripture, that's what we find with God. We see that in between the spaces where God is speaking, we also find beauty in the silence. And that even in the parts of the Bible where God is silent, He is still speaking and still moving and still working. And so as we continue our look through the big story of the Old Testament, the themes and the motifs that we find there, this morning we are going to look at the silence of God. And see how we're supposed to think, how we're supposed to understand the times when God remains silent. We're going to see how those people inside of Scripture responded to God's silence. And it's also going to point our hearts to the season that we're entering today in the season of Advent. When we're waiting in the midst, in the in-between of Christ's first coming and His second, waiting for God to break the silence and bring Christ back to make all things right and all things new. And so our main scripture today is Psalms chapter 74, verses 9 through 11. And this is what it says. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet. And there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from thy fold of your garment and destroy them. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we do thank you for your word. But also, God, in a weird way, we thank you for the times when you are silent. Because we know that you don't do anything without your wisdom behind it, without a plan and without a purpose. And so, God, help us see the beauty in the space between. Even though, God, so many times the feeling of silence can hurt and be disorienting, God, remind us that you are with us and working on our behalf and for your glory at all times. Thank you for the honesty of your word. And help us to take that very seriously as we look through the big story that you laid out for us in the Old Testament. And God, help us to trust you in the quiet. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've talked about this before, but it bears repeating because it's a very pivotal moment in my life. I know a lot of people have kidney stones, and kidney stones can affect people different ways. And sometimes people can just have a kidney stone and almost never know that it happens. Sometimes you have them, and you know. I knew. So I had this kidney stone. It was the first time I ever had one. Hopefully it's the last time I've ever had one. It radically changed my life and the way that I eat and drink and everything because I don't ever want to experience this again. And so I had this kidney stone and it hurt really badly. But I feel like I've had all my life, I've had a pretty high pain tolerance, especially now. Usually I can handle a pretty, pretty wide array of pain. But for some reason, this particular thing had me on my hands and knees in the waiting room at Clearview Medical, just in agony. And looking back on it, I'm not sure if it was actually the level of pain that I was experiencing or not knowing if it would ever stop. 
because I'd never experienced it before. And it was this weird feeling, and it was this weird pain, and I, I knew that at some point it probably had to stop, but this is not what I expected whenever I heard about kidney stones before. And so I just didn't know, is this, is this the rest of my life? Like, is, this, is, the, is this the next hour? Is this the next six hours? Is this the next seven years of my life? Is this ever going to end? And it kind of had a weird psychological impact on me. And I think on a much larger scale, that's what's happening in Psalm chapter 74. In Psalm 74, this psalm was written right after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And so these outside invaders had come in and they had taken over the city of God's people taking people into exile, but destroying the outer walls and destroying the temple itself. And in the midst of this passage that we just read, we see some of that desperation where the people of God are looking at what's happening and they're seeing not only their people being taken into exile, they're not only seeing their city being destroyed, but they're seeing the place where they went to meet with God reduced to rubble. And there's something symbolic about that. When the temple is destroyed, the people realize that we've gone too far. And we've looked at this over the past several weeks as the people were getting to this point where God was about to send destruction into their city because of their disobedience and because of their idolatry and because of their lack of hospitality. They finally were realizing the severity of what was taking place because not only are the prophets saying these things about how God is fighting against them, now they have a visual representation of how serious this is because their temple has been destroyed. And through all of this, it seems as though God is silent. Listen to what the psalmist says. We don't see any signs. There's no longer any prophets. There's none among us who knows how long. And so they've been receiving their warnings. They knew that this was coming, but now that it's happened, there's silence. There's no prophets. There's nobody standing up and saying, this is hard right now, but if we just hold tight, if we just turn our ways back towards God, and if we just repent and seek after him, then everything is going to be okay, and this will just last a little while. It's only silence. And so we see here the people crying out, out of confusion and abandon. They have this desperation, asking God, how long is this going to take? How long are we going to be punished? How long are you going to be absent from us? How long are you going to be silent? Please just tell us and we can be okay. And the passage continues. And the psalmist starts reminding God of who he is. He says, you divided the sea by your might and you broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters and you crushed the head of the Leviathan and you gave him as food for the creatures of the wild. Basically saying, God, remember how strong you are. Verse 17 says, you fixed all the boundaries of the earth and you've made summer and winter. Don't you remember who you are? You have the power to fix this. You have the power to take care of this. Why are you allowing this to happen? And what do we need to do now? This passage in Psalms reminds us that there's a very unique desperation in the cries of a people calling out to a silent God. There's something about this passage that has these early echoes of one time later in the Bible when Jesus and his disciples were on a boat. 
And the storm comes and starts to shake the boat. And again, remember, some of Jesus' disciples were lifelong fishermen. They were professionals at this game. But the storm was so violent and so rough that the disciples were fearing for their lives. And they looked around to find their master. They looked around to find their source of hope, their their source of their faith. And they found Jesus at the bottom of the boat asleep. And their cries were very similar to the cries of the psalmist. Saying, what are you doing? How are you asleep? Why are you silent when this storm is about to tear us apart and rip us to pieces and kill us? How are you able to be sleeping and silent when our lives are about to end? And the cries of the disciples on that boat and the cries of the psalmist here in Psalm 74 grab the emotion. They grab the hurt and the confusion that comes with recognizing the silence of God. And I'm thankful for these moments in Scripture because it helps me feel a little less crazy. It helps me feel a little less alone because there are plenty of times in my life where I feel like God is silent, where I feel like I can't hear God, where in some sort of modern sense I'm saying, I don't think I have any signs. I don't think I have any prophets. There's nobody around me that can tell me what I'm going through or what I'm struggling with. Why aren't you speaking? But God's word reminds us that this is, this is a normal way to feel when we experience that silence. And so I wanted to start here with Psalm 74 because I think this helps us establish this foundation to know that when we feel that silence of God, it's okay to feel distraught and confused and even to a certain extent, desperate. In Psalm 74, the psalmist is experiencing something very common in the life of the people of Israel. One of the things that happens a lot when we move into this latter half of the Old Testament story and we start to see the stories of exile, there are a lot of allusions throwing back to the book of Exodus. Because the people in exile in Assyria and Babylon were feeling a lot of the same feelings and a lot of the same emotions as God's people were generations before when they were in slavery in Egypt. And remember, we talked about the calling that God gave to Abraham. And he came to Abraham and he says, listen, I have something amazing for you. I've got this place that I've designed especially for you and for your people and your children. Your descendants are going to fill this place and it's going to be their land that I've made especially for them. And I'm going to give it to you in 400 years. And until then there's going to be a little slavery in between. And your people are going to be in slavery for about 400 years, but it's okay because I have this awesome plan on the other side of it. But that's 400 years. That is a very long, long time. 400 years ago was 400 years ago, and things were very different in the the 16, 1700s than they are now. So that's a long time. That's a big scope of time in the human existence. And so what we find in this book of Exodus is generation after generation after generation of God's people being born and dying in slavery and ultimately in silence. See, they, they had no Bible. They had no prophets. There were no words from God, only the sounds of slavery and silence. Imagine how they felt. Certainly there there were echoes of what God had told Abraham. And maybe there were people that clung to that hope. 
But there had to have been feelings of confusion and abandon and maybe even apathy. Maybe it got to the point where they were feeling calloused and unaware of the fact that God was even there. And now we know that one day God would send a stuttering prophet to come and break the silence and speak a new word to his people. But they didn't. They couldn't. How could they? Much like the psalmist, they probably worked day and night saying, how long is this going to last? And so they toiled away day after day and night after night as slaves in a foreign land haunted by the silence of God. There's another moment in Scripture where we see God's silence. The book of Esther is a very unique book. I love the book of Esther. It's an amazing story. It's an emboldening story. And there are a lot of great people in the story of Esther. And so you have this king of Persia and all the fanfare and glory that goes along with that. And so it's set in this royal setting. It would make a really just great, awesome just movie. And I think there's been one, but I didn't watch it. But it was probably really good because this is a really great story with this king. And he's powerful and he's awesome and there's this spectacular thing. And you have Esther, who is this, this beautiful Hebrew woman who's brought in and becomes the wife of the Persian king. You have this dastardly guy named Haman who has this plot to to eliminate the Jewish people. You have Mordecai, the family member of Esther, who is passionate for his people and, and pushes Esther into this amazing position where she's able to stand on behalf of her people and save her people in the presence of the king and even risking her own life. It's an amazing story with an amazing cast of characters. But someone is missing from the story of Esther. See, if you read through the story of Esther from start to finish, you would find a very peculiar thing when it comes to God's story. God is never mentioned. Not once. In the entire book of Esther is the name of God mentioned. And so you have this amazing story with the Hebrew people and this this Hebrew queen standing in the presence of a Persian king risking her life to save them. And nowhere do we see God give her an instruction. Nowhere do we even see God's name mentioned in prayer. But even though we don't hear God's words, in the story of Esther, we see God's work. What we find in the book of Esther is Esther and Mordecai moving in the rhythms of God's story. We see them praying and fasting and leading the people in a fast and then also speaking and standing for the oppressed. We see Mordecai and Esther living out in their lives everything that God had instructed his people to do and moving in the rhythms of, those gra- of that grace. And the book of Esther reminds us of an important truth. That God's silence is not a sign of God's absence. And God's silence is also not an excuse for inaction on behalf of his people. Because what we find in the book of Esther is not a cry about how long, but two people who are willing to stand up for the broken, to stand up for the oppressed, to stand up for the hurting, even at the risk of their own lives in this exact picture of how God has commanded his people to live. Putting into play that exact hospitality that we've spoken about, about reaching out and taking what was yours and giving it away for the good of someone else. Seeking God and praying And fasting. One of the most famous moments in the story of Esther. 
is when Mordecai and Esther are talking, there's obviously some doubt on Esther's part. Because during this time, to go into the king's courts unannounced, even for the queen, would be punishable by death. And so she knew that to be able to go and speak on behalf of her people who were being oppressed and persecuted by Haman, it could cost her her life. And Mordecai encourages her to go. And he says, who knows? Maybe you're in this exact position. Maybe you've been made queen for such a time as this. Maybe this is your moment. Maybe this is why all of this is happening. And if we read underneath the text there, he's saying, maybe God has orchestrated this in just the perfect way so that you can have the boldness to stand before the king and to save our people. And we see Mordecai encouraging Esther to have the boldness to step out on faith and to trust in God's sovereignty even when his voice seems distant. And so Esther teaches us to have faith and boldness to continue doing what God is calling us to do even in the midst of times of difficulty and in the times of silence. Speaking of difficulty, the book of Lamentations is a book of difficulty. And we've talked about Lamentations some. It's not a book that that we interact with a whole lot, but it's a very important book in God's story in the Old Testament. And we've talked about how Lamentations is this book of elegies, these funeral songs, basically singing about the spiritual death of the people of God in the Old Testament. But there's a certain tone to the songs that the people are singing. And it reminds me of a very fearful feeling as a child. Because there may have been times growing up, at least two or three, where I got in trouble. (laughs) Perhaps more. Dare I say substantially more. But I remember the arguments, and I remember being insightful and helping those arguments escalate a little bit. I remember the times when my parents would get so mad that that we would just be like loud and all this kind of stuff. But those things I could handle, and perhaps you feel this way with me, but you know that there's a certain time, a certain thing that you can do where your parents stop talking. And instead of experiencing the anger and the wrath, you feel the disappointment and the silence. And in those moments, you think, just say something. Say anything. Yell at me. Be mad at me. Lecture me. Just give me something. Just please don't be silent. And that's what's happening in the book of Lamentations. We see a book of God's silence in the midst of sorrow. We see the people of God crying out because it's in the same setting as Psalm 74. Everything had fallen apart. The people had sinned. They had turned their back on God. As we saw a couple weeks ago, they were, they were inhospitable. They stopped caring about those who were in need. They stopped caring about the widows and the orphans and the poor and the broken. And God had had enough. And he said, fine, if this is who you want to be, if this is how you want to live, then I will let you be that way. But I'm not going to have anything to do with it. And what we see in the book of Lamentations is people crying out to God about what's happening in their lives. And you get this feeling that they're just shouting out to God, say something. Say anything to us. Be angry at us. Bring your wrath down on us. Hurt us a little more if you need to. Punish us. Discipline us. Just say something to us because your silence is hurting us so deeply. 
Lamentations 5, 20 through 22. The last verses in this book. It says, why do you forget us forever? And why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored and renew our days as of old. And then verse 22 says, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. The end of this book sounds a lot like the desperate fear of never hearing from God again. Just say something. Just tell us anything. We want you to restore us. We're ready to come back. But are you so angry with us that you're never going to look at us again? Are you so angry at us that you're never going to speak to us again? And we feel the full weight of the desperation of God's people in the midst of God's silence through the book of Lamentations. As we look at the end of God's story in the Old Testament, we start to see these prophets coming and speaking of a better time. But then the book ends. In Malachi chapter 4, this is what the entire chapter says. The prophet Malachi says, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The last words in God's big story in the Old Testament are words of hope. And we see this pattern with all of the prophets. The prophets would proclaim the message that God was unhappy with his people because of their sin. There would be a sentence on what was going to happen to them. But then there was this message of hope. And the last words we see in the Old Testament are words of hope. And God says, I have something for you. I have a deliverer who's going to come and he's going to make right all of these broken things. And he's going to put back together all the things that you've caused to fall apart. I have something incredibly wonderful waiting for you. In about 400 years. If you have just a standard Bible with no notes or anything like that inside of it, there's a really unique page right in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. For mine, it's got a little heading here that says the New Testament, but it's one thin page. I can almost see you guys through the page. It's very thin that separates the Old Testament and the New Testament. This one page represents a whole lot of history. Because in between those last words of Malachi and the introduction of Christ into the world in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... We have 400 years take place. And over that 400 years, the world changes as the world does over 400 years. We see the Persian Empire fall to the Greek Empire. 
And the Greek Empire rise and become the most dominant force the world has ever seen and bring about a common language and start to unite the world in a way that had never been united before. We see the mighty Greek Empire fall and the Roman Empire rise. And even in the midst of that, we see about a hundred years where the Jewish people rose up and earned their freedom back under the Maccabean period for a solid hundred years only to fall back under Roman oppression and Roman government. But during all of that, there was no prophet. There was no word from God. Only silence. But the words of the prophets stayed close to God's people. And this time they held on to those words with hope. The hope that we're going to talk about next week as we look at the hope that God's big story puts in the hearts of his people. In this 400 years of silence in what we call the intertestamental period, the time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it feels different than the silence in Egypt. It feels different than the silence of lamentations and the silence of the psalmist. We see a people who are waiting, but they're actively waiting for God to break the silence. And by the time Jesus begins his ministry, the anticipation and the hope and the expectation is at its peak. And this is the period that we remember in the season of Advent. The season of Advent puts us in the mindset and puts our hearts in the position of the people who were waiting in the in-between, who were waiting on the words of the prophets like Malachi and Jeremiah and Isaiah to come true when God was going to bring in his Messiah into the world, who was going to be a king in the line of David, who was going to be a fulfillment to the promise that God gave to Abraham and to Moses and to Noah. He was going to be the one who would break the curse that started in Genesis chapter 3. He would be the one that would write the law of God on the hearts of his people and would establish them as a people like they had never been before. That's what we do in Advent. We wait. We remember the anticipation and the expectation for Christ, but we do that on this side of his birth and his life and his death and his resurrection. And remembering the waiting that they had to endure reminds us that we can endure the waiting that we have as well. Because during Advent, we also actively wait in what often feels like the silence of God trusting that one day he will break the sounds with blasts of trumpets and Christ will come again to make all things right and all things new. In the midst of our times, as we cling to God's word, as we cling to the word made flesh in Christ, as we cling to the hope that we have, it can often feel very difficult to wait. That's why we see the purple of the candles in Advent, the purple color in in the liturgical spectrum of of the church is a a color of, of somberness often a color of mourning. And it reminds us that the things aren't the way they're supposed to be. That there's still brokenness, there's still sorrow, there's still hurtfulness in our world, and there are still times, even though God has spoken to us so clearly through his word, there are still times when we don't feel like we can hear from God and we feel like we sit in silence. But the message of Advent is that hope is coming. That Christ is coming to make all things right and all things new. He's coming to take our hurt and our brokenness and even our sin and shame and make them no more. And we'll be with God forever. And we'll never have to worry about silence again. 
You see, much like we see in the, in the intertestamental period of God's people in the Old Testament, the season of Advent helps us to turn how long, O Lord, into come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's a subtle change, but it's an important one. Instead of looking at the world that we live in and our difficulties and our circumstances and crying out saying, how long is this going to last? We realize that one day there will be a time when these things are no more. Instead of crying out in that desperation, we cry out in anticipation saying, God, this hurts and there's brokenness and sorrow and sometimes I don't feel you and sometimes I don't hear you, but I know that you're coming and so come quickly, Lord Jesus. Advent turns how long and to come quickly. And so if you're here, and maybe even now you feel like God is silent, know that you're not alone. It's a part of all of our walk in the Christian life. That sometimes it feels like we see and hear and understand everything God is doing very clearly, and sometimes it feels like we are in complete and total darkness, and the silence is maddening and deafening. But if you're in the midst of a period of silence and you feel like God is absent, then know very well that he is not. Because we have a God who speaks in the words and in the space between. We have a God who sings through the notes and through the rest. And God's Old Testament story gives us a calling and a freedom to follow in the steps of those who came before us. And we see that it is perfectly acceptable for God's people to be hurt in the midst of what feels like silence and to cry out to God in sadness and in sorrow and to remember and to know that God hears us when we're broken in his silence. But we also have the reminder that even in the midst of God's silence that we can stand boldly in our faith that we can continue in the rhythms of God's grace and take the steps doing what he's called us to do and being reminded as we do that he goes with us and for us and acts on our behalf and have the faith of Mordecai and have the faith of Esther to be able to say, even though I can't fully see where this is going and even though I might not be able to hear very clearly now, God, I'm going to take these steps and stand boldly and do the work that you've called us to do. And it also gives us permission to cling to our hope to remind us that God is turning our how long into come quickly, to remind us that we have a hope not simply for deliverance, but a hope for restoration, that God is making all things new through Christ, and one day we will see that in its fullness. And so during this Advent season, let's learn to trust God in the quiet. Let's learn to be still and know that he is God in the midst of silence. And actively wait for the day when we'll never know the feeling of silence again.